Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. All right, a pleasant good evening to everybody across the land. Uh, I'm your host, Rob Starr, along with a very, 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 very other best host, Mr. Chris Davies. How are you doing, Chris? Hey, great, Robert. Thank you very much. How's it out there in Arizona? Very pleasant week here for us. Same here. And I hope everybody is out there uh, listening to us is having a good St. Patrick's Day. Everything is green here. Sun's out. It's 85 degrees. Beautiful. And uh, we're enjoying it. And how's everything in uh, sunny California? Uh, pretty much the same. It's nice to have a quiet week like this and just kind of sit back. It pales in comparison to, uh, although uh, we have to deal with it, all the other stuff going on in the world, Robert. But, um, you know, knock on uh, wood uh, that uh, things get resolved quickly. <laughs> I hope so. I, I can't believe the pricing of things that I'm seeing every single day, and not only gas, but, but food. I mean, regular regular box of cereal, you know, uh, six dollars, and, and oh, yeah. the box size the box size is the same, but the weight inside is less, so they're filling it less. Yeah, yeah. Than, you know, so everything everything is is just going up like a rocket, and uh, yeah, I, I don't Gas know what, especially right. Oh yeah, and and also I read that uh, you know the uh, IC world, integrated circuit world, is going to get hurt because a lot of the material for the palladium and other stuff they use in making uh, the chips uh, come from Russia. So that's going to be an interesting thing on what's going to happen. And I see I see products being pushed out like uh, 50 to 60 weeks to get a, an IC chip. So it's going to be scary in the world. So we'll see what, we'll is, see what yeah. happens. It is indeed, buddy. All right, what other news going on? We know that the uh, Irrigation Association is looking uh, at uh, to, to close up their uh, program this week on uh, the Outstanding Watch Us Grow Award for uh, yep. program, right? Yep. So exactly. if you're an irrigation, yeah, if you're an irrigation or a lighting contractor, you know, and and uh, the go-to resource for you guys obviously is the uh, Landscape Irrigation and Lighting Contractor uh, magazine. So uh, right now, that magazine and the IA is celebrating company leaders who have successfully this year. Uh, promoted growth within their own businesses. Uh, if you want, if all our listeners and you want to get some recognition, some recognition you deserve, uh, let's encourage them, Rob, to apply to the Watch Us Grow program, the 2022 Industry Standout Program. For those of you who are interested, you have to apply by March 25th, that's this uh, coming week, and go to irrigationandlighting.org to uh, place your submission. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, they also have, uh, and that's a great thing for people who are in the business. Also, there's a uh, mentoring uh, a program that they have that uh, I don't know exactly where you call, but you can just go to www.irrigation.org. And uh, right. if you belong, you can uh, tell them what you're looking for, and they, they uh, you know uh, connect you in uh, to a mentor that can help you in your business. And uh, I think that's a great thing. It's a good organization. It really stands stands apart from just being a regular mow and blow kind of guy, and um, it's 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 just a great organization to be with. You can get a lot out of it: education, um, connections, business. I mean, it's everything you want. So, hey, people take a look at it. It's a, it's a good thing. So, 
Anyway, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I'm just going to point out, Rob, that there is, you know, just by entering, right? Just by, just by um, uh, submitting, just by making a submission to uh, to that program, you'll be entered into a drawing to receive a solo stove, which is one of those bonfire fire pits. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So again, go to irrigationandlighting.org, guys. Okay. Well, we have uh, our wonderful person who comes on every single week and does our California water news, Ms. Chris Austin. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, everybody. How you doing? We're all doing good. Happy good. Happy St. Patrick's Day to you. Yes, happy St. Patty's Day to everyone. Yes. So, so think- we're... We're hanging up here. I'm up here in Chico again, which is sort of in between the state's two largest reservoirs. And uh, we had some rain the other night. Uh, Not a lot, but uh, I'm not even sure enough to really uh, run off the pavement, but just kind of wetted everything down. Not much. Uh, It was the first rain uh, first precipitation that we had had here in in quite some time, uh, so uh, at, and it was a really warm storm. So uh, there wasn't much snow, and it probably rained on a lot of the lower elevation snow. So um, you know our snowpack is is pretty dire, and uh, yeah. and, and uh, now we do have another storm coming in on Saturday, but again. It's not going to be a lot, a little bit more than what we had the other night, but there's no March miracle on the way, folks. So, uh-huh. I heard I heard the state water board is going to zero out water supplies. Well, it's okay. That's not the state water board. There's a lot of a lot of agencies in the game. Uh, no, it's uh, there's like two main water. Uh, delivery systems in the state. There's the Central Valley Project and the State Water Project. Uh, the Central Valley Project is federal. It's run by the Bureau of Reclamation, and right. they put out their water allocation um, uh, about three weeks ago, which basically uh, didn't provide any water for uh, south of Delta agriculture and not a lot of water for anybody else. Um, other than that as well. And the state water project uh, put out an allocation of 15%, which they did um, after we had the storms in December, but there was a lot of speculation that that wasn't going to hold. And so while they haven't made the official announcement, (laughs) um, it's pretty much a guarantee that they're going to announce that uh, they're going to drop the 15% and go down to just health and safety uh, needs only. So, uh, you know, our hydrology is dry, and the situation is pretty uh, pretty dire. We sure have, California sure has a lot of different agencies. Oh, so a ton. <laughs> yeah, so, so, I mean, and I thank you for, you know, for, for correcting me on that. But let me ask you your opinion. Do we need that many? Can't they consolidate and... Join forces and get that all done. Is it, you know, I would think it would be things could go faster. <laughs> well, yeah, a, a lot of these, um, the reason why we have so many, um, or in part, one of the reasons why there are so many is that this, these agencies have been around for a long time. So, you know, there's 
agencies that maintain the levees. And and then from the, the levees, then there's the flood control agencies. Um, and then there's the water suppliers, the water agencies, and irrigation districts. And uh, it's just kind of all built up from then. And then in the government, you know, I mean, that's just on the local level. But when it comes to the state government, there are a number of states. Uh, state agencies that have some kind of hand in water issues. Uh, the main ones that have the most control are the Department of Water Resources, the State Water Board, um, and the Bureau of Reclamation. But when it comes to doing a project, you know, like, like if you're going to build a project in Northern California on a river, then you're going to have to deal with the State Water Board and the Army Corps of Engineers and the Department of Fish and Wildlife for what they call a stream bed alteration agreement. <laughs> and I mean, it just, it, it just goes on and on. I think, you know, they all started out as kind of being relatively separate, but I think as we've grown as a country, as we've grown as a society, there are, uh, you know, authorities have become more and more overlapped. Um, in some cases, Consolidation is good, but, uh, you know, I think it's going to be hard, uh, it, in part because here in California, we seem to like uh, separate governmental entities. <laughs> yeah, it just seems like there's lots of repetition, and then when you got to work with another agency, one boss has to go to the other boss, and you know, versus having everything tunnel up through one, one way to do it. Because wasn't there also talk, I think you mentioned last time, that Somebody wanted to disband the state water board and go to different, have three people and do something different. Yeah, well, yeah, they wanted to disband the state water board and hand everything over to the Department of Water Resources. I I don't think that's going to go very far. And I think it, it sounds all good on the, you know, in theory until you start really digging in. The state water board is, is actually... The State Water Board was uh, created to, or it, it has the responsibility as the state implementer of the Federal Clean Water Act. Okay, so it has some very specific responsibilities that come with that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and that's just one aspect of what they do. I mean, then they have, they regulate water quality in the state. They regulate water rights. And they right. also deal with uh, drinking water. Uh, drinking water systems used to be part of the Department of Health, but they moved drinking water system and regulation over to the state water board, which is really a good thing. But it expanded the state water board a bit. Now they have a third division, but they kind of have everything housed uh, underneath one roof. And, you know, there's people get mad at the state water board because they have to be the ones like when there's no not enough water to go around. They get to be the ones that tell people that they can't divert water which is really, really hard when you're a farmer and you need that water to water your crops and make a living. So people get mad at them a lot. And, and uh, they say, you're, you're just government appointees. And, you know, 
you're you're not accountable to us and we ought to be able to elect you. <laughs> but yeah. the problem is that the state water board has tasks that are highly technical. I mean, uh, you know, I maybe it's notebooks, I get down in the weeds, but there's a reason why you don't see uh, me covering a lot of the state water board, that's because they get even farther down into the weeds where they're talking about particular CFS of water going past a certain point. Um, you know, the board members are set up so that there's an engineer and a lawyer, there's an agriculture representative on the board there's a public person and i can't remember what the fifth is but they're all chosen for to have various areas of expertise so that they understand what's coming at them this is not an a, a, an elected person's kind of job it's highly technical well, there's a reason why they chose they get, a, they get a more balanced perspective that way i would so well, yeah, and you also, you know, you need, when you have some of these projects coming at you, you need an engineer to, with the knowledge of an engineer to look at that, you know. I mean, it's it's one thing when you're maybe at a city council and you have to approve a project of, of some kind, but in the state water board, the ramifications are, are you know, pretty big. So you really got to understand what you're looking at at a, in a very technical sense. So, you know, there's a reason why it is the way it is. And and I really don't think that they're going to uh, collapse the state water board. <laughs> it's just, it's not, not going to happen. I, that would be my, my impression. I don't think it's getting a lot of traction, I think. But. Well, you know, with, with all this water, you know, stories of how you know, you got to you got to reduce water, and, and and we're not getting any more allocations for water from the sky, and this and that. I, I saw there was a university study that that showed that thousands of jobs could be uh, impaired because of what's going on. Well, yeah, um, and this is one where you kind of have to, uh, you know, take a, a little bit of grain of salt, you know, and understand the uh, the analysis was uh, requested by and probably surely funded by um, the Westlands Water District, which is a very large irrigation district in the Central Valley. And in terms of when agriculture came to the Central Valley, uh, the Westlands Water District is one of the last ones to be built probably one of the, it's the largest last one to be built, I think coming online in the 1960s. And in California water, you know, it's all first in time, first in right. So basically they're in the valley and they have the most junior of water rights and they're usually the first to to not get any water. And um, And this is really tough for them. Uh, so yeah, they, they so they commissioned this study that says, hey, you're not giving us water, and we're going to lose all these jobs. Which, I mean, we kind of already knew that. It's not it it's not like 
there's all this water in the reservoirs and the state and the feds are saying, nah, we're not going to give it to you, <laughs> you know. And they're, they're trying to conserve all the water that they can. They do have to release water from the reservoirs to flow into the delta to keep the delta fresh. Meaning you have the deltas connected to the bay and to the ocean, so you have to release fresh water to keep the bay and the salty water from coming too far into the delta. And if it comes far into the delta, for one thing, if you're a delta farmer, you may have salty water and you won't be able to, uh, you know, to water your crops with that. Uh, but also, um, if it comes too far in the delta, it can impact the the export pumps in the South Delta, and so they won't be able to ship any water out to anybody south of the Delta. It was they'd have to shut down those pumps. So it's not you know you just can't not release water from the reservoirs. Plus you have to have some water in the in the rivers. You can't dry up the rivers, right? So there it's like. I'm not sure where they think that this water is going to come from, uh, especially because in the way that our water rights system is, first in time, first in right, there are a lot of other people that are going to get that are going to get that water first. This is really tough. This is tough for the farmers, especially in the Central Valley, because it's also when they have to implement their groundwater sustainability plan. So in the past, they've always been able to just, you know, well, we're not getting any water from the river, so we'll we'll run our groundwater pump. But that's why, you know, the the groundwater levels have decreased so steeply in the last few years, especially then the, during the 2014-2015 drought. It was, you know, they were using an awful lot of groundwater. And that's why their reservoirs are all depleted. So they don't have any surface water and they don't have any groundwater. It's very tough to be a farmer, you know, and not have access to water. Uh, and so I, I understand their pain. And I think it is going to be painful. It's going to be painful for everybody in the San Joaquin Valley. Um, well, I think big farmers around the country are getting hit by more than just water. I mean, I, I heard today about uh, the price of fertilizer has gone up like 160 percent and gasoline and stuff. That's, you know, that and water. Those are the things that make a farm go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's tough. It, it's not easy to be a farmer, especially in this day and age. So, you know, and, and it's those farmers out there in the fields growing food is how we can all sit here in the cities and, and not have to be, you know, farmers ourselves. So we need them out there. Yeah. But we also have to deal with, you know, the water that we have. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's, that's the challenge. You know, with implementation of, of the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, they're going to have to take some land out of production. It, it's just going to happen anyways, and that's going to be, have its economic issues. So they, some people say 750,000 acres out, uh, will have to come out of production in the San Joaquin Valley. So um, the government has a new program. The state has a program to 
you know, provide some funding to figure out what to do with these uh, these parcels that won't be farmed anymore. You kind of can't turn your back on it and walk away. Then they become dusty and weeds and, you know, not good stuff. <clears throat> now, there's a number of things that you can do with the uh, solar panels. Perhaps it could be habitat of some kind. Uh, so they're starting a program uh, it's been funded, I think, $50 million this year, but it will go on for a number of years uh, to try and help figure out what to do with those uh, with that idle farmland. So we'll see. So, Mr. Davey, what do you uh, what do you see in here? Well, I was going to ask, right? Is this so in the state of California here? Do you, uh, Chris, do you see a continuation in some um, state funding that'll It'll continue to be available, or or greater availability of uh, state funding for drought emergencies. I know that earlier this week the Newsom administration did, I think the word was boost uh, state funding for a drought emergency. It certainly seems like that's going to have to continue to happen. Oh yeah, ab absolutely. Um, and I think that um, they've already been distributing funds out to help people. Um, and I think it's going to be needed uh, as we move through this summer. It's going to be a pretty hot and dry summer, it's looking like. And, um, you know, there are going to be people running out of water in their homes and their, their wells going dry. So the state is preparing for that, I think. You know, maybe for the next show, I want to. I was reading one of your articles about our state senator uh, Weiner, who introduced legislation to ensure public school and state agencies uh, have clean water, clean drinking water, and I, I think the reason that they're allowed to do that, uh, introduce a bill for that, because it's 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 not a, a, a individual homeowners or things like that. It's 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 stuff that the taxpayers pay for, but I'm not clear on why they have to have that just for the schools and the state agencies. It should be for everybody in California, for all the water agencies. So I'm going to try to get a uh, an attorney in from Best Bess and Krieger, who does a lot of water uh, law, and see if we can understand, or I can understand that better. I, You know, to me, when I first read this, I thought, you know, that that's all they're going after is the public schools. Everything has to do with the state. But it didn't go down to individual homeowners and places like that, which I would have believed it should be. It, doesn't the EPA? I, I mean, I believe the EPA puts out standards of what water should be, and yet there's a lot of it that's not happening here in California. So, yeah, and and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I'm looking at this article and I see, yeah, it's it's requiring schools and state agencies in their facilities to do this. Um, it's like, I think, you know, in, in terms of homeowners, your, uh, your water district is already, uh, testing for, I'm sure all, all sorts of things. And I'm sure it's these, I think, um, you know, what they're looking for is something a little more hyper local, uh, you know, just in that, at particular sites. Um, so. We'll see. That's well, I'll tell you, Chris, let me ask, let me ask hmm. a question, Chris, because I'm kind of going after this this uh, 
Leopold article that, and I, and I, ha I haven't watched the video yet, so I'm, I'm going to say that right, right out front. You know, this whole black swan thing, right? An unpredictable and unexpected event that this COVID-19, for example, is a, a black yeah. swan event. And asking the question, could could a black, black swan event happen in the water industry? So, I, and I haven't watched that video, but I know you have. Was it, was it good? Yeah, I thought so. And that's some great panelists uh there um you yeah, know and Marcus, they, yeah yeah i mean they they talked about you know sort of it, it, i mean it, it was it was interesting like felicia says that we act like every drought is a black swan although we should know they're coming so we shouldn't be so shocked so <laughs> although i would say i think we're better prepared for this drought than we were for the other you know that we Agreed. just had um, so I wouldn't say we're that bad, but yeah, and drought is hard, especially when you're a farmer. There's just no nice way to not have water. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, what I, you know, I learned some interesting things like, uh, the water and energy coll collision. They're like water and energy are on a collision because if you think about it, if they said this and you think about it, it's true. They said the things that save water take a lot more electricity. <laughs> yeah. And the electrical innovations, you know, electricity innovations that they come up take a lot of water. So it's, you know, it's it's going to be really hard to, you know, make some of these changes. Like I guess in Las Vegas they're telling all the casinos and large buildings that they can't use uh evaporative cooling they have to go to something else and that something else is going to require more electricity you know well you know it's like that famous song uh, love and marriage you can't have one without the other <laughs> so i guess that goes for that well chris we're coming up to our commercial break we do appreciate you giving us the latest scoop on what's happening in california and as always, for our listeners, please go to www.mavensnotebook.com. Become a subscriber. Become a sponsor if you'd like. Uh, you get uh, all, all the water updates, news every single day coming to your computer. When you, at least that's uh, Christina and I get that every morning we turn on our PCs. And uh, it gives us a lot of good insight. And it's a good, good way to learn really what's going on down in the weeds. So we appreciate that, Chris. And thank you. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have you back next week. All right. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Have a great week, Chris. All right. We're going to take a little break, and we'll be back with our featured guest. So stick around for the second half of The Water Zone with Rob and Chris. We'll be right back. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM. If you knew there was a pipe cement that works better than the one you're currently using, is better for you and the environment, and costs the same or less, would you buy it? Well, no-brainer, right? Weldon, the trusted leader in solvent cements for over 60 years, is pleased to introduce a new line of solvent cements that does all that. Introducing the Eco-Series line of solvent cements for PVC piping systems. Not only does it work great and set fast, it also has 30% lower solvent emissions and less smelly fumes, a better workplace environment when you're installing pipes. But don't just take our word for it. EcoSeries products are the only solvent cements that are Green Seal certified for environmental innovation for effective performance, improved working conditions, and for use with potable water. 
Now available in a medium-bodied, fast-setting blue formula, 905 Eco, and a regular-bodied, fast-setting clear formula, 900 Eco. Pick up a can today from your local distributor and see, smell, and feel the difference, just like Joe Sweat, president of Sunrise Irrigation, did. He said, after using Weldon's 905 Eco, we immediately noticed the application was smooth and there was noticeably less odor than other blue solvent cements on the market. The guys love it. To learn more about Eco Solvent Cements from Weldon, visit the website at www.weldon.com or call the Technical Service Hotline at 877-477-8327. That's 877-477-8327. Love you, love you not. They love you. Satisfying your customers, it's a full-time job. Want an easy way to make them happy? Try having your ornamentals delivered straight to the job site with Nursery Direct. Could save you and your clients a pretty peony. Think about it, instead of driving to the nearest nursery, picking up the order, and then driving to the job site, the crew's able to begin work right away. That cuts time and labor. Savings you can pass on to your customers and you can get your plants delivered direct even if you don't have a nursery branch in your area. Here's another quick tip. Keep a substitutions list on standby for every project so your team knows what to do in case a plant isn't in stock because there's nothing customers appreciate more than a project that finishes on time and on budget. They love you. They really love you. Aww. Miss your favorite show? Download the podcast at kcaaradio.com. All right. Uh, welcome back to the second half of The Water Zone with Chris and Rob, and hope everybody's doing well. And, Chris, I'm going to let you do the honors and uh, bring on our featured guests. Chris? Hey, sorry about that, Rob. I oh, was, okay. Uh, I thought it was my end. Trying to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> when we can't see each other, that makes it makes it interesting, doesn't it? Doing this, uh, doing this radio show, a state apart these days. So. Well, well, anyway, yeah. Hey, let me bring up. Yeah, since, so, since, we're, so, since we're not in the studio, we can't we can't give signals to each other. So, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, I'm assuming that you did the welcome back to the second half, so I'm just going to go ahead and just start. We're going to bring on our second guest. His name is uh, Aaron Tartakovsky, and he's the co-founder and CEO of Epic Clean Tech. It's an on-site water reuse firm. Prior to uh, Epic, Aaron has served as Director of Business Development and Marketing at CB Engineers, where he formed its R&D division. He also worked in federal politics, where he remains active and to this day and in affecting public policy on a local, state, and national level. Aaron understands that coming together on new technology and forward-thinking government, smart regulation can be a catalyst for positive change on a global scale. So before we get any further, let's welcome uh, to, to my engineer and welcome Aaron to the show. Hi, Aaron. How are you doing? Sorry, Thank you. Technical problems since we're all of us are not together. <laughs> it's a little hard sometimes to do the show when we're we're segregated by uh, by miles. But we we want to stay healthy and not not go to the studio and put our mouths on microphones and get to, get uh, COVID. So that's how we're working this way. But uh, one of the things that Chris and I always do 
because it's it's nice to know why people got into this world of water. And, uh, you know, the, there must have been something that uh, you thought of or, or struck you that there was a need for you to do it. How did you get into this industry of water? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And and a special, special thanks to, to Chris for nailing my last name. It's got a lot of letters and it usually confuses folks. So I appreciate the, the perfect pronunciation. Um, yeah, look, you know, my, my journey to water uh, is pretty topsy-turvy. Um, I previously was working in federal politics. You know, before that, I was one of those kids in college who always thought that he was going to become an elected official. Prior to that, I thought I was going to become a chef. At, at one point, I thought I was going to become a rabbi. Uh, so definitely not a straight line. But, uh, but the, the, the story of Epic Clean Tech, which is how I, I got involved in the water world, actually goes back to the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So they had something called the Reinvent the Toilet Challenge. And mm-hmm. the basic premise of that was billions of people worldwide don't have access to clean water and reliable sanitation. Many parts of the world don't have you know, the ability to sort of build out the centralized water, wastewater infrastructure that, you know, we were speaking on this show about, you know, the, 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 that San Francisco, Los Angeles, or frankly, any city has. So how do we create decentralized solutions? So out of that work with the Gates Foundation, we realized that, you know, this work was not just applicable to the developing world, but also to the developed world, also to all of our cities here in the U.S., where we can be doing things differently when it comes to water and wastewater. So uh, I came into this industry uh, about seven years ago. Uh, I, I like to say I'm a recovering political operative, but uh, <laughs> at this point, I'm 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 firmly a I'm firmly a water guy at this point. Well, you know, you probably won't get as much uh, TV time <laughs> and be a pundit, but uh, you're certainly working on something that uh, is really going to help uh, human and mankind here in in the world because you know water is our most precious commodity and and if we don't learn to use it right uh, we're not going to have it one day so uh right. so chris why don't you go ahead and follow up with questions and then i'll, I'll pop in and yeah repeat. no problem uh, no yeah no problem rob thanks and uh apologize to the listeners right coming back after the break there i had a bunch of problems with my mic but i think i've got them uh all worked out now rob so i apologize uh, uh for that to you and to aaron and aaron i'm glad i nailed the last name buddy that's uh that's good. Don't, don't worry did, about you, changing. You, you your did name. great. How long, Aaron? How long did it take you to learn how to pronounce that? I, I figured it out by middle school. Okay. <laughs> and and another another note on all those all those uh, changing of your majors or your direction. Don't worry about it. When I was in college, I changed my my major more times than you've had hot dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Um, hey, listen. So we, we're going to talk. Let's talk about the the drought a little bit, right? Especially now that um, if you heard a little bit of the uh, first half of the show with Chris Austin from Maven's Notebook, who is uh, who's a regular on our show, talking about the drought. It is it's about to enter what what we would quote as you know record breaking territory, right, in the Western U.S. Uh, especially. So um, you know, from your stand from your standpoint. In the Western U.S., uh, how how is the drought, from your viewpoint, how is it affecting towns and cities? Well, you know, I think it really depends who you ask. You know, I think obviously yeah. the farmers 
the farmers who are using a lot of water, they're feeling it, the ranchers, um, you know, people for whom water is just so integral into everything they do and their livelihoods are feeling it uh, in a very different way than, than what I see, you know, sitting here in, in downtown San Francisco. Um, you know, we, being a relative newcomer to this industry, one of the things I've discovered is that we live in, in what we like to call a flush and forget society, which is to say, you know, we've built our infrastructure to be underground, very literally out of sight, out of mind. And people don't, mm-hmm. you know, at least the people I'm around, they don't really think about this too much. Um, this is this is something that, you know, uh, unless something happens to their home or there's a sewer block or, 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 or they feel it themselves, you know, when they turn on the tap, they just assume water's going to come out. And I think that's part of the reason why sure. we're not seeing the, 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 the reduction in water use that we're hoping for especially in our cities and, and um, but you know that needs to change and I think that's what we're trying to do and I think that's what you know shows like this are trying to do is to raise the profile of water and make sure that you know the everyday person understands that this is not you know some unlimited unlimited resource that is just always going to be there because you know the status quo uh, is just not sustainable that's true yeah it is a point it does you know the water use Average daily water use by residents and and corporations and companies, farmers and all that kind of stuff has become over the years kind of like a, you know, a, given a foregone meaning, right, to the average person anyway. Not mm-hmm. not many people think about it. When Rob and I do uh, do events and things like that, and we have our little uh, dog and pony show, and we present when we tell when we make people realize that the the water that's on the planet now is the same water that's been here for you know the millions and millions and not billions of years. You know, there's no pipe coming in from out of space delivering more stuff. So what we've got is what we've right. got, right? That, uh, that's 100% okay. right. And, you know, what, what 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 I am seeing more and more, you know, moving beyond just, you know, the, the average, uh, everyday resident is, you know, a lot of industries that we, that we work with, you know, including real estate developers, they're seeing it. You know, we're seeing water and sewer rates going up 5 to 15% a year in a lot of big cities just by virtue of, you know, needing to overhaul infrastructure. We're seeing data centers, which, you know, by the way, data centers are growing at an unbelievable clip because everything you sure. do, every big tech company needs data, and the average data center uses the same amount of water as a 50,000-person city. So more and more we're seeing that, you know, it's no longer just about can we grow our food, but it, it's starting to hit industry. Uh, as well. And so that's why we're seeing not only farmers, but also, you know, all the big tech companies who need to build data centers and have semiconductors producing their chips. All of them are are feeling are feeling this water scarcity in a way that they never have before. Yeah. Hey, for Rob, that hits you, that hits you at home, Rob, because there's in Phoenix where, where Rob lives, there's a couple of plant, there's some plans for a couple of large chip manufacturing facilities in and around Phoenix. Is that right, Rob? That's correct. They're talking about two huge ones, but you know you, it's going to take years to build, uh, you know, to set it up. But uh, I know Intel has the plan here. They're going to have another a fab uh, built, and then there's another uh, uh, Oriental Asian company that's uh, planning to do that. So you know, we when Chris uh, Austin was on a few moments before uh, Aaron, she was talking about you know with water and electricity and how how that all meshes together, and, and that's something I see. You know these water decentralization systems. You know they're they're going to have to have rooftop solar. That's going to have to be a big popular thing for a lot of these big office facilities and and, and buildings and 
things for cooling towers and, and power, all of that. How, how do you see that? Because I know you're you're involved with that a lot, Aaron, and I know you're you're, you're I believe you're up in, in the Frisco area, and I think when you and I talked before, you had uh, you know same people we do like Paul and Kehoe from San Francisco, and and the pr- progress that they're making into uh, all new construction of office complexes and things. They're going to have to have their own water recycling kind of plant built on premises. Isn't that, isn't that correct? 100% right. Yeah. So San Francisco is the first city in the country to actually mandate that all new large construction projects over 100,000 square feet have to have an on-site water reuse system. And, you know, the, the premise of it, and this has been in development for years, but you know, the basic premise of it was back in the in the previous job, back in 2015, uh, some of our elected officials came together and said, you know, we're in the middle of this drought. Why are we using fresh water from Hetch Hetchy to flush our toilets in downtown San Francisco when we can be manufacturing water right on site for toilet flushing and other non-potable applications? So think irrigation, just like you said, cooling towers, even laundry. And what we found is that you know, for the average building, you know, we can we can reuse up to 95% of that building's water right on site, meaning that is 95% less potable drinking water we have to pull in from the city supply and can instead recycle right on site, right at the source. So, you know, San Francisco is really leading the way nationally for this, but I think California is going to, on a global scale, lead the water reuse, uh, we call it epic, the water reuse revolution. Um, just by some some new regulations that are are making this uh, much easier to do. So, just two quick follow-up questions to that. So, uh, one, are there incentives given by the water agencies there to put in? I mean, you know, if it's a mandate, you have to put them in. But is, do they do they ease up on any costs or rebates that they can get back? And then the second, well, I'll let you answer that one first, and then I have one one other one. Sure. Yeah. So. Um, the short answer is, look, where it's mandated, um, there's not necessarily going to be incentives. This is something that these buildings are required to do. Uh, the good news for the buildings is that if you use less water, you pay less. And so okay. what we're seeing is that, you know, on, on most of our projects, you know, even with that capital expense of having to put one of these systems in, they're seeing a return on their investment of, you know, less than seven years, which for a large building project uh, is very fast. And, and there are grant programs, there are incentives for buildings that uh, that go above and beyond, meaning if they're required to do it, but they're still going and you know, recycling millions of gallons a year, way past what they're required to do by the regulations, they can qualify for grants from the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. Okay. And so the public utilities don't, don't, does not charge for any of this because that's water they normally would be providing. So now they're not going to be providing it. So they don't get any percentage of that, or so they they, they still do, um, just because you know the building is only recycling water for non-drinking uses. So uh, you know, for for a commercial building, that could mean you know 90% of the water is recycled, 10% is still supplied by the city. Uh, for residential buildings, where the percentage of, of water needs potable to non-potable is around 50%, that means that you know 50% of the building's water is still going to be supplied from the city. And they're still going to have to discharge some wastewater into the sewer. So um, there's still there's still a relationship with the city uh, for sure, but uh, it's just not not as not as much as if there was no system at all. Okay, thank you. Clears that up. 
Chris? Yeah, there, um, Aaron, are there, um, so set aside for a minute just the new construction and the requirements or, or regulations uh, for that. I mean, if, you, if you're going to wait for a, you know, complete turnover of uh, construction to get water reuse systems put in, that'll take a long, long time. What about retrofits or, or um, you know, putting reuse systems in existing buildings? Is that gaining any ground? No, it's a great question. And so the, the answer is that, yes, retrofits are possible. Um, you know, we're seeing, for example, in the winery and brewery world, that's a, a really big opportunity for retrofits. You know, these are large operations that have space to be able to put these systems. And, you know, with any type of recycled water infrastructure, you need special pipes, what we call purple pipes, to be able to actually route that recycled water. And again, the pipes are colored purple. Uh, to make sure that we're not plugging drinking water pipes into the recycled water pipes. So um, wineries and breweries are one big area for retrofits are possible. And then even for existing, you know, residential or office buildings, retrofits are also possible there. Uh, it's just a matter of the economics. So, you know, if you're going to try and replumb a 40-story high-rise with, you know, thousands of toilets with purple pipes, that might be prohibitively expensive. But if you're just going to route that water to irrigation, and, you know, you can basically just lay a bunch of purple pipe irrigation to that recycled water system, then all of a sudden it makes sense. So uh, the answer is it, it depends, but it's, it's definitely possible. So, so many, you know, even homeowners and so many commercial buildings and, uh, and even industry, um, you know, using water, multiple use cases that are, uh, that are out there. <clears throat> this is obviously <clears throat> designed and built for getting some sort of sustainable benefit um, out of it. Can you, can you kind of tell our listeners a little bit about what, what sort of sustainability be benefits come from water reuse systems? I mean, uh, you know, it, there's, there's a lot. Uh, and you can sort of measure it a lot of different ways. You know, I think, um, you know, I think that your previous guest talked about something really important, which is the, the water energy nexus. You know, we use about 20% of our state's electricity budget on all things water and wastewater, whether that's the transportation, the collection, the treatment. Um, you know, we, we have a vision of, you know, can we get to a point where Northern California and Southern California are self-sufficient? You know, can we get to a point where we won't have to pump water from Northern California over mountains down to Southern California? So, you know, I think long-term, one of the big visions on the sustainability front is you know, being able to have these self-sufficient communities uh, that aren't reliant on whether or not it rains to know if they'll have enough water for the next day. Um, that's on sort of the, the macro level. On, on the building scale, you know, I think one, one of the, the measurements we see a lot is LEED. Uh, LEED is one of the, 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 the measurement standards for how green a building is. Um, by incorporating an approach like ours that at the CleanTech, uh, these buildings can qualify for up to 15 LEED points, which you know, for those who aren't in the industry, uh, each lead point can, you know, can, can equate to tens of thousands of dollars. So the, the benefits of these buildings by incorporating an approach like this, in addition to actually saving on their water and sewer bills, uh, you know, they're going to be checking all the boxes on, their, on their, their green and sustainability credentials. And, you know, when you factor in that, you know, we, we, are, we are part of the resource recovery movement, which is to say it's not just wastewater treatment. It's actually we're recovering commodities. So in, in the case of what we do, not only are we recycling the water, 
but we're also taking all those wastewater organics and we're turning those into soil products and we're also recovering the heat. And what that means, right, you know, right. we use an incredible amount of energy in a building to heat up water for showers, for dishwashers, for laundry. All of that typically goes off into the sewer. And by our calculations, there's enough energy being lost in our sewers that were we to capture that, we could power every single electric vehicle on the road. So what we're doing is we're actually capturing the heat. You know, they come, this, all this heated water comes into the tanks in the basement of the building. We are actually taking that energy and using it to do things like, you know, preheating the building's water. And just by preheating the water a little bit with the existing heat, um, you know, in one of our, our, our new projects, we're going to be reducing the building's overall energy by 2%, which equates to hundreds of thousands of dollars of savings a year. So, um, you know, there's, there's a many different ways where we are, we are sort of contributing to the environmental, the environmental credits uh, of this building, but those are just a, yeah. a few of the key ones. Yeah, a couple of percent may not sound may not sound so much, but when when that two percent comes essentially by using you know the ambient or leftover heat, that's that's a win win. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, you get a bunch of two percents like that, and everybody's doing do, doing pretty well. Go ahead, Robert. <laughs> oh no, I was going to say when I was talking to Aaron uh, a couple of days ago, we were talking about a, a mutual acquaintance, uh, Seth Siegel. Uh, and uh, he did extensive uh, research and wrote two books about the, the water industry in Israel. And he was telling me how in, in Israel, how they mine the, re, the reclaimed water and they take paper out of it. They take oil. Actually, and not everybody in the world would probably know this, but if you happen to be of the Jewish faith, a lot of the grandparents used to cook with instead of with regular oil, they use what's called chicken fat. And a lot of that gets recycled back into the water. Uh, you know, when people finish with it, but um, they take that and refine it and to make it a, a, an oil for indus- industrial usage. And the same thing with toilet paper, they remine that and they make other products out of it. So it's amazing what you could do. And I think Israel is probably one of the, the best sources or, or, or technology for, for doing that. And, and they've done um, uh, uh, unbelievable things in that. Do you see a lot of that technology uh, starting to be used here in the United States and other places in the world? We do, yeah. You know, I think uh, so, so. So, two of my co-founders are Israeli. Um, I used to live in Israel, and that's actually wow. where a lot of this this early work was born. And you look, Israel is is kind of the gold standard when it comes to to, to water and wastewater management. It's a small country, but they recycle about ninety percent of all of the wastewater they produce. Now, to to put that in context, you know, I think the the second best country when it comes to water reuse in the world is Spain. You know, somewhere in the 30% range, and I think the U.S. right now, as a as a nation, is hovering in the the three three percent range in terms of all the wastewater we recycle. So, you know, the the gap between three and 90% to to some folks is probably disappointing, uh, but I actually think that just means we got a lot of opportunity to do more. And and water reuse, in my opinion, is is low hanging fruit. You know, this is a the resource we have. We have the technology to be able to do this. Uh, that's not the issue. It's just about how do we how do we deploy it more quickly. And I think uh, you know we have a lot to learn from Israel. You know Israelis are here a lot. You know drip irrigation, which we see uh, yep. all over the world, and especially in California, was developed in Israel. And it's a it's a pretty amazing story how how drip irrigation was was first thought up on a on a little farm in Israel. But um, you know I think what the good news is that the the amount of collaboration between the U.S. Uh, between California specifically. And Israel uh, is very robust. 
you know, the, the delegations going back and forth, maybe not during COVID, but pre, and I'm sure we'll continue. Uh, the, 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 the bilateral exchange is, is, is very strong, and, and I only see that increasing because it's only a, it's a win-win, especially for, for our water and farmer communities. Well, plus, I think, you know, I, I was told by, by Seth that Israel sells water to their enemies. <laughs> and that was surprising. Yeah. But so I guess we could. Yeah. I mean, that, that could be a, a powerful weapon, I guess, if, we, if they ever needed it. But that's, that's amazing to think about it. But, you know, uh, money and people and water, all those together. I mean, without any of that, you don't have anything. So uh, I guess it's, it's a good thing. Maybe, maybe it'll help bring the world to a better place someday instead of what it is today, but uh, scary things. So how do people get a hold of you so we can, they can get some, some more information and, and maybe utilize uh, your services and such? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that the easiest easiest way to find us is to come to our website, uh, com. And again, it's epic, clean, and then tech without an H, so T-E-C. Uh, you know, we're on... We're on every uh, every social media platform, so you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even recently TikTok. Uh, we've got a new director of marketing who has launched the Epic TikTok account. So, uh, you know, any one of those ways you can find us and on our website, we have a, a contact us form where you can get in touch with us. Excellent. Is there any special projects you're working on that you can tell us about real quick with the moment, minute left? Yeah, you know, there's uh, a few of them are under wraps, but uh, okay. one project... Uh, one project you can you can take a look at. We'll be uh, we'll be doing a, a, a high rise in San Jose uh, called Park Habitat, and that's a 1.2 million square foot building that we will actually be capturing the water and uh, recycling it to irrigate 20 stories of living walls. So the entire building is is covered in actual plant life, and it's all going to be irrigated with recycled water. So uh, you can check it out, Park Habitat uh, in downtown San Jose, and. Uh, Great. Yeah, there's a lot more to come. So. Great. We appreciate it. Well, we have to bow out of here because uh, NBC News Hour is, is upon us. And, and uh, Aaron, thank you very much for joining us. We'd love to have you back and get into some more details on some stuff. So thank you again for coming on the show. Uh, Chris and I really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Bye. Okay, to our fans out there.